Just 30 years ago, when I first moved to Longreach in Western Queensland to take up duty as a pilot with Qantas, most people regarded flying as a brave and even foolhardy adventure. The job of demonstrating the potential of commercial flying as a regular and practical means of transport had only just begun in 1924. Qantas had then been operating for 18 months, a weekly service between Charleville, Longreach and Cloncurry. At that time, my total flying experience was a mere 120 hours. The aircraft in regular use was surplus equipment from World War I, with provision for only one pilot. A new male pilot, therefore, began by travelling as a passenger for two or three trips over the route and a short amount of solo landing practice at the base airport, then he took over on his own. This was not so easy, since radio navigation aids did not come until ten years later. There were no special aviation maps, and the country of Western Queensland was relatively featureless. Later one came to know every dry creek course, and to recognise each of the scattered homesteads even during the summer dust storms and in poor visibility. The types of aircraft we use then are seen in the museum today, and many people regard these old wooden fabric machines as having been our major weakness, but this is not truly so. The two great problems of safety, I now realise, were the inexperience and ignorance of many factors in flying which are common knowledge today, and the smallness and roughness of most of the landing fields. Despite these, Qantas in those early years established an excellent safety record, and this was most valuable in creating public confidence. Long before the big cities of Sydney and Melbourne had any regular air services, the people of the outback in western Queensland had come to know and accept their, general, their regular air service. School children going to their homes in Cloncurry for the school holidays would be handed over to the pilot to be looked after en route and met by their parents on arrival at Cloncurry next day. As you can well imagine, being a pilot was a most popular job. To the people in the back country, he was, and still is, the personification of all the benefits which air transport brought for the first time. He was the individual responsible for their air mails. He was the one who enabled them to receive their city newspapers four or five days before it would otherwise have arrived by rail and truck. For the more isolated communities along the route, he was the one who took their broken teeth or spectacles away on Tuesday and brought them back repaired on Thursday. He passed on messages, handed over money, and even did special shopping missions for individuals. Many special flights arose through sickness or accident at isolated homesteads and sowed the idea in the mind of the Reverend John Flynn which led in the later 1920s to the establishment at Cloncurry of the first organised flying doctor service in Australia. After three years in the west of Queensland, during which time I came to know and to love the wide open spaces and the warm-hearted people who lived out there, I moved to Brisbane early in 1927 and opened up the Brisbane branch of Qantas. The first de Havilland Moth aircraft had arrived in Australia and the purpose of Brisbane branch was to establish and operate a flying training school, do joy flights and special charters and sell Moth aircraft to prospective private owners. My job was manager, pilot, flying instructor, sales manager, secretary and typist, all rolled into one. 
Despite this, business gradually prospered and grew. One of the early instructors was Charles W.A. Scott, who later became well known when, with Campbell Black, he won the centenary air race from London to Melbourne in 1934 in a special de Havilland racing aircraft, then known as the Comet. Charles Scott was a brilliant, but somewhat times uh, temperamental, pilot. It was in Brisbane in 1927 or 28 that I first met Keith Anderson and Hitchcock, and a few weeks later, Kingsford Smith and Charles Owen. Those were the years when adventurous flights captured the imagination of the press and public. In 1928, Kingsford Smith and Ulm in the Southern Cross achieved undying fame for being the first to fly the Pacific from America to Australia. These early first flights and astonishing solo records recall the names of Hinkler, Amy Johnson, Charles Scott, Jimmy Mollison and many others. These flights were unquestionably hazardous and it is debatable whether all the publicity associated with them over those years advanced and encouraged civil air transport. It was in 1929 that Anderson and Hitchcock perished in central Australia while on a flight in search of the Southern Cross in which Kingsford Smith and Owen were missing in northwest Australia. Together with Fred Stevens as radio operator and Phil Compton as engineer in the uh, Qantas plane at Atlanta, I had the unforgettably sad experience of finding Anderson's plane, the Kookaburra, in desert country southeast of Wave Hill Cattle Station. Anderson and Hitchcock had both perished in grim fashion some four days earlier. Their aircraft had been forced down by engine trouble. If their aircraft had had two engines, they could have continued on to civilization. If it had had radio, they could have reported their position and water and supplies could have been flown to them in time. That search flight for Anderson was my first experience of radio in aircraft. The radio was installed hurriedly during the night before our departure from Brisbane by the simple expedient of drilling a hole through the wooden floor of the passenger cabin with a brazen bit. The small radio set and batteries were placed on the cabin floor and in flight the aerial, with a lead weight attached to the end, was simply lowered through the hole in the floor by hand. Nevertheless, that radio demonstrated the additional safety which radio provides. We were able to report our position every half hour and we were able to advise immediately when and where we found the missing aircraft. On another search flight some six weeks later with the same aircraft, we succeeded in finding the Velour flown by Moyer and Owen. This machine, on a flight from Timor to Darwin, struck engine trouble but managed to make a crash landing among tree stumps at the isolated lighthouse on Cape Don in Arnhem Land. The lighthouse had no radio equipment. With our, with our improvised radio, we were able to report our find immediately and arrange for a ship to bring medical aid and to pick up the injured pilots. However, it was not until five years later in 1934 that multi-engined aircraft equipped with radio were introduced to our airlines. From that time onwards, the number of ground radio stations has been increased until today the position of every airliner in flight and its expected time of arrival at its next port of call is known and controlled. It was towards the end of 1934 that Qantas inaugurated Australia's first 
regular overseas service to Singapore, the official opening being performed in Brisbane by the Duke of Gloucester. By 1938, our air service to Singapore and England changed over to the large all-metal flying boats. These old flying boats did a good job for Australia throughout the war, not only in maintaining communications, but also in carrying personnel and supplies to advanced areas and bringing back wounded. They were also valuable for ocean reconnaissance. The civil airliners of peacetime are immediately available when a war breaks out and are invaluable. This applies not only to the aircraft but also to the very experienced pilots, the skilled engineers, the engineering workshops and stocks of spare parts and the whole airline organisation. It justifies reckoning our airlines as being an essential part of our defence preparedness. The first 19 Catalina flying boats brought to Australia before Japan entered the war in 1941 were flown out from America without damage or incident by Australian airline pilots who had never seen this type of aircraft before. Later in the war, Catalina flying boats, flown by experienced airline pilots and navigators, secretly established a regular service between Perth and Ceylon. It was not generally known, perhaps, that this service maintained a regular air link to England at a time when the enemy were in occupation of Singapore and Java. The distance of 3,500 miles was then, and I believe still is, the longest non-stop regular service ever operated. The average flying time for this trip was 28 hours, and on one occasion, against headwinds, the flight took over 34 hours. With all that petrol, there was, of course, little space for payload. But regular air mail to and from England was maintained by the use of microfilm, and the other parcels and passengers carried were of high military priority. Since the war, we have seen the volume of civil airlines in Australia expand and multiply to overtake the leeway of the war years and to cope with the natural expansion which the wider acceptance of air transport has required. We are now on the eve of the introduction to Australia of turbine-powered airliners. The first of the Vickers Viscounts is expected to arrive here in a few days, and these aircraft will begin regular scheduled services in Australia in November. Just as the smooth steam turbine replaced the old piston engine in ships, so now the internal combustion turbine will replace the complicated piston engine in aircraft. It will bring to Australians a new standard of smooth, effortless flying. At the same time, the basic simplicity of the turbines promises new records of regularity and reliability. Australians can feel proud of the progress and record of their civil airlines over the past 30 years and can rest assured that in equipment and in personnel they will continue to compare favourably with the best in the world.